This episode of You in the Ring is brought to you by The Grad House. One of the best kept secrets on campus, The Grad House is for everyone. They offer a range of house-made meals that cater to diverse dietary needs. And with weekly specials, you are sure to find something new every time you visit. Located right off the bus loop, The Grad House is a great place for lunch, dinner, or just hanging out with friends. The Grad House. You don't have to be a grad student to eat here. Life loss is a, a big risk in these buildings, and we have a ton of them in downtown Victoria. The more you understand something, you know, the, the better. Um, but you're going to be in a much better position if you are prepared and if you do. Um, not that you have to be, you know, worried about it. I do believe that all of us, though, do need to be prepared. We do have to have a plan. We need to talk to our family about where are we going to meet if we can't get home. Uh, we need to talk to our relatives about being prepared so we can help one another. So I feel like, yes, we are a campus that's fairly aware of the hazard beneath us. And what exactly is that hazard? Earthquakes. We're bombarded by earthquake safety drills every year. Earthquakes off the coast, and some even in town, that we sleep through. And constant news articles about the inevitable gigantic earthquake that's coming for us, whether we like it or not. You're listening to You in the Ring on CFUV 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the Songhees and Wasanich territories of the Lekwungen and Senchothan-speaking people, also known as Victoria. On this episode, we're talking about earthquakes. We are saturated with earthquake preparedness information, and it's not that fun to think about, because it could mean losing everything you own, or getting injured, or worse. In the last 15 years, earthquakes and the conditions they cause have killed well over half a million people. Natural disasters happen all around the world all the time, doing irreparable damage. Hurricanes, floods, tornadoes. But the thing is, in lots of other cases, people don't have the luxury of knowing that a disaster is impending. But we do know. Are you aware of Victoria and us being on a fault line and the likelihood of an earthquake happening? No, actually. <laughs> I, I, I took earth and ocean science, but all they, t- all they taught me was about rocks. So. <laughs> all I know is that it's quite likely that we're going to have an earthquake here, but I don't know how prepared we are for it. I don't know if this is true, but I heard that when the big one happens, like the entire west coast of North America is supposed to drop like six feet. And then there's there's going to be two earthquakes. The first one will be like magnitude eight to nine. And then the second one is going to be the really big one. That's like 11 to 12. Um, And then there's going to be a huge tsunami after each one. So, yeah, it's going to (laughs) be devastating. But that's like all speculations. If it happens, it happens. And I'm like, I chose to live out here, so it's just something that comes with it. Allegedly. And at least we're prepared. What would you do if an earthquake happened right now? I would run. No, I would scream first, probably. Go under a table. Just wait until, I don't know. Hide under the table, possibly. That's the first thing, yeah. Run to the quad. Run to the quad? Yeah, because it's an open space. Yeah, and then I just stay there until I get for like at least until it like stops shaking. I would try and help people as much as I could. Um, I'm a trained first aid. Apart from that, I'm not sure. I actually don't know. Yeah. I would hide under table. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> Out of the building. That's the only thing I know. Do you have an earthquake preparedness kit at home? 
I do not. <laughs> no, and I don't even know what that would look like. I do not have an earthquake preparedness kit at home. I guess I'm scared of being squished and killed. Uh, my favorite part of Earthquake Preparedness Week is when they tell us to get underneath the desks, but they only have the flip-down arm rail, and so none of us can fit. Well, maybe not. An inevitable earthquake's coming, and we need to prepare. A lot of people get all doom and gloom about this stuff. It's gonna be an apocalypse. Wah, there's nothing we can do. Well, we're here to tell you that that's not true. There is stuff you can do. So what are we doing about it? And what's UVic doing about it? On this episode, we're going to find out why living in Victoria is particularly precarious, how prepared we actually are, and how the university would recover from a huge disaster like a massive earthquake. We talked with some professors at UVic about earthquakes. One of them was Ed Neeson. I'm an associate professor and Canada research chair in geophysics at UVic. And when Ed explained the significance of our geographic location, he used a lot of terms that we have to explain. So here's an earthquake 101. Earthquake 101! The Earth's outermost shell is called the lithosphere. It contains the crust and the uppermost mantle, which is underneath the crust. The lithosphere is broken up into big slabs of rock called tectonic plates. There are seven major plates and lots of minor plates. The two plates that affect us the most are the Juan de Fuca plate, found to our southwest, and the North American plate, found to our east. You see, these plates move because they're actually free-floating, but they move really, really slowly. The movement is between 0 and 100 millimeters each year, and the reason they move is because of a process called convection. Now, convection just means that hotter, less dense fluid floats to the top, and the cooler, more dense fluid sinks to the bottom. So hotter at the top, cooler at the bottom, and that creates a transfer of heat. And that creates convection currents in the liquid center of the Earth, which cause tectonic plate movements. The movements are felt at the plate boundaries where they touch each other, and what can happen is this thing called subduction. So if you imagine two actual dinner plates running into each other, and one of the plates is just jamming itself underneath the other plate. That's subduction, and there's a lot of built-up energy and force there. Ed says that's what's happening here. So, um, so we live on a plate boundary. A very long plate boundary. That's over a thousand kilometers, so from northern Vancouver Island all the way down to northern California. And this long fault is what makes a particularly massive earthquake, because they happen along the boundary of two plates. So um, beneath our feet, the Juan de Fuca plate, which is an oceanic plate um, offshore Vancouver Island, is subducting or being dragged underneath the North American plate. So we live on the North American plate. But beneath our feet, about 40 kilometers below us, is a, a different plate that's um, sub subducting, um, being dragged down into the mantle. So along that plate boundary, there are earthquakes, um, melting of the of the downgoing plate um, causes volcanism as well. So if you look east, we can see Mount Baker in the distance, which is a volcano. Um, but the bigger hazard are earthquakes. Um, and there are secondary hazards associated with earthquakes, which can include tsunamis and landslides. So all three of those things, earthquakes, tsunamis and landslides are really big hazards to Victoria. Volcanic eruptions um, are more of a hazard if you live on the mainland, less of a hazard here in Victoria, but also something we should be aware of at least. There are actually three types of earthquakes that can happen to us here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, there are deep earthquakes, which can be magnitude 6 or 7. They happen under the subducting plate instead of along the boundary. Here's Lucinda Leonard. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences here at UVic. I specialize in plate tectonics um, and earthquake hazard and tsunami hazard. 
um, there are earthquakes that happen inside of the subducting plate as it um, as it keeps traveling down into the mantle um, because it's it has to bend and it gets and under under gravity it it gets sort of pulled downwards um, and so there's earthquakes that happen as that plate basically breaks. Lucinda has been involved in research recently about faults like this, and the research has shown that there are active faults that run very close to Victoria. And these are a real problem because even though they're not going to produce a magnitude 9 earthquake, they might produce magnitude 7 to 7.5, and, and they, um, where, that, where the epicenter is could be a lot closer to, these, to Victoria, to populated areas than you know, the big one. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we're looking at potential damage uh, very similar to that Christchurch earthquake in, in 2011, um, where there were, I believe, three um, large building collapses. And it's a city that's very, very similar to Victoria in terms of its building code, in terms of uh, its size. Um, so it's, yeah, there's a a lot of ongoing research to okay. try to figure these faults out, to figure out if, if they could produce tsunamis as well, because um, there are faults that run right offshore Victoria. We'll have more on buildings later. Then there are crustal earthquakes, and they're much more shallow than the fault lines along major tectonic plates. The magnitude of a crustal quake can be 3 to 7. This is Ed. They're shorter and they're smaller, and the earthquakes on them will also consequently be smaller. Um, they might be magnitude six or magnitude seven. Um, they're potentially just as hazardous as the, the the fault that's capable of the big magnitude eight or nine. So the magnitude eight or nine fault is well, it's a long distance beneath our feet, but the main slip will actually occur offshore, so it'll be west of us. And so the faults that are closer to us may only host smaller earthquakes, but they could potentially be just as damaging, if not more damaging, locally. So there is, there's actually, the, the big one is just part of the picture. There are many, many faults capable of earthquakes in our vicinity, um, some of which are not yet identified. And then there's the third most potentially dangerous earthquake, the big one, the mega thrust. So there's always the big talk about the big one. Um, can you explain like what the big one means, especially in this context? So yeah, so earthquakes happen with a variety of magnitudes and the magnitude scale is logarithmic. So each increase in one unit of magnitude is actually a 30 times increase in in energy released. So magnitude seven is 30 times bigger than a six. Magnitude eight is uh, a thousand times bigger than a magnitude six or 30 times 30. What Ed means when he says the magnitude scale is logarithmic is that there are huge differences in the earthquake magnitudes, which are numbered one to nine. In this scale, a magnitude 4 earthquake is hugely different from a magnitude 3. For example, a magnitude 9.0 earthquake and a magnitude 6.3 earthquake only have a difference in magnitudes of 2.7, but the 9.0 quake is 500 times as big and 11,220 times as powerful. So a magnitude 9, when we talk about the big one here in, in the Pacific northwest or western bc i suppose it's canada's canada's um, pacific southwest but in here in bc the big one means a magnitude eight or nine earthquake on a specific fault and that is the subduction fault it's the plate interface between the subducting juan de fuca plate and um and the overriding north american plate when people refer to the big one mm-hmm. they are talking about uh earthquakes that happen 
on the boundary between those two plates. So the Juan de Fuca plate, as it subducts underneath North America, it, uh, there's a lot of friction between those two plates. And so even though that plate keeps getting uh, fed uh, into the plate boundary, it's stuck and it will remain stuck for hundreds of years. And it just builds up, builds up strain, builds up energy, just waiting to, uh, to get released in a massive earthquake. Okay. So that's the big one. And that we expect uh, will be a magnitude nine, uh, will also cause a devastating tsunami on our West coast. Right. So that's really, that's the big one. It's important to note though, that that's not the only fault in our, um, in our backyard. So preparedness seems urgent because it's not just the big one that's looming. These other kinds of quakes can also do a lot of damage. But if you look at the history of earthquakes in this region, it's clear how much damage even a magnitude 6 or 7 can do. 1946 was the last um, magnitude 7 plus earthquake on Vancouver Island. The recording instruments they had back then were not able to precisely measure the exact location or the characteristics of the earthquake. But it's believed the epicenter is somewhere close to Port Alberni, so quite distant to, to Victoria. But a magnitude, it was around magnitude 7. Uh, the depth is not very well understood, so it's not known whether this is one of these crustal faults or something a little bit deeper. Um, and it caused extensive damage. And another more recent one. There was also an earthquake in 2001, Nisqually in Washington state that was very strongly felt here in Victoria. The damage in Seattle and south of Seattle was really considerable. Um, and that was another one that that was a deeper earthquake. It was not it was not the big one on the subduction plate interface. It was actually what's called an intermediate focus earthquake, which is within the downgoing slab where that slab bends. So deeper fault that you wouldn't see at the surface. So those those pair of earthquakes basically highlight the fact that it's not just the big one that we have to worry about. These magnitude sixes and sevens can be just as destructive locally. Mm-hmm. Um, the big one would be something that would be significant regionally. It could affect all the way from Northern California to Northern Vancouver Island. Um, but the yeah, it's still up for debate how much damage would actually likely occur in Victoria and Vancouver, for example. If we go even further back in history, we can look at earthquakes in this region from hundreds of years ago. 319 years ago. That earthquake was estimated to be between 8.7 and 9.2. This is Lucinda. The only reason we know the exact date of the 1700 earthquake is because that earthquake produced a large tsunami that was still damaging after it crossed the Pacific Ocean and caused some deaths and damage in Japan. Okay, wow. And they had very... Um, they have a very good uh, written historical record in Japan so that we could pin it down to the exact time okay. and date. Um, but the previous earthquakes, we it's based on um, radiocarbon and other dating um, of the effects of those previous earthquakes. So it's a um, little bit harder to pin down the exact date. But in the, the previous events, what we, what we know of them, they happen on average about every 450 to 500 years. But it's not like clockwork. Right. Um, The shortest time period between two of those large events was about 200 years. So we're past that. But the longest time was about 700 years. Okay, so it's... So we're we're in that range. Yeah. You can choose to worry about it, but... Well, I mean, it is our biggest earthquake hazard here. So that should give us all the more reason to prioritize being prepared. And according to the statistics, it looks like we're due. 
Ed says that Japan, for instance, is surrounded by a very similar set of fault lines, and they experience many earthquakes all the time, which relieve pressure on the plates. But in our region... Whereas Cascadia, for reasons that are not very well understood, Cascadia is extremely quiet. It's eerily quiet, actually. And it's really the quiet before the storm. We know that there will be a big earthquake in the future. The question is not if, it's when. We don't know when it will be. It might be tomorrow. It might be in 10 years. It might be in 100 years. I mean, it could well be outside of our lifetimes. We may never experience the big one. But we know that it will happen, so we should definitely prepare for it. So there's a lot of unknown factors. But Lucinda says... There is 100% likelihood that there will be a strong earthquake here. We just don't know when. Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, It's about a 30% probability within a 50-year time period, which is one way of looking at it. Um, But we are in a very, very high earthquake hazard area here. So Mm -hmm. it's just... um, It's in everybody's best interest to, to be prepared so I think it's, you know, not something that you sh- t- should feel panicked or paranoid about. Just it, it is a reality of living here. And that is not the end of hazards associated with the realities of living here. Some areas might be susceptible to liquefaction. Um, What's that? <laughs> it's where uh, I imagine it's quite squ- scary to be around. Um, you think you're standing on solid ground and then basically it starts to shake like Uh, jello and then turned to liquid during the shaking water um, saturated sediment can actually basically lose its coherence and lose its strength and it's effectively turned to liquid ed again and it's effect it's an effect very similar to if you go on a, a sandy beach and you go to part a part that's sort of wet from wave action and you sort of shuffle your feet, your feet sink into the sand and water rises up. That's liquefaction. And that can happen during earthquakes to buildings built on soft sediment. Mm-hmm. So anywhere that's on soft sediment is is at greater risk than areas on, on bedrock. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of James Bay, I think, is built on uh, reclaimed land. So they actually just probably tip material into the sea and sort of built out the land that way so that wouldn't be a good place to to be um but victoria as a whole actually most of victoria you do see bedrock outcropping in many places um and so victoria as a whole is actually relatively well sited Mm -hmm. certainly for liquefaction um and for this ground this amplification um effect The areas that would see liquefaction include James Bay, the Gorge, the Esquimalt Estuary, areas surrounding the Upper Harbor, and pretty much the entire area underneath the Empress Hotel. But that's not all. So, yeah, so for for Victoria, with all of these earthquakes, it's the earthquake shaking that I would worry most about. Although, because I also study tsunamis, I always have those on my mind. And I also know that even a a smaller earthquake might trigger a landslide, and the landslide might trigger waves. Um, but on the West Coast, you would have very, very strong shaking in the earthquake, but you really have to be concerned about a very large tsunami as well. And Lucinda shared this story about visiting Haida Gwaii after the second biggest earthquake ever recorded in Canada at 7.8. It was in October 2012. And it's a um, different plate boundary there. We're north of where the Juan de Fuca plate ends, and it's Pacific plate directly in contact with the North America plate. And that earthquake was actually a subduction-type earthquake, and it did produce a significant tsunami. 
2012. Most people did not hear about it because <laughs> it happened in uh, late October, and the area most impacted was the west coast of Haida Gwaii, which is unpopulated. Okay. And the communities around the eastern side, they were sheltered from it. Um, the most panic actually happened in Hawaii because mm. um, this earthquake happened. Um, nobody considered that there would be a tsunami. But um, there are instruments out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and they started to pick up a wave um, headed towards Hawaii. So they quickly evacuated the beaches, caused a whole bunch of panic. Um, and it wasn't very large by the time it, it hit there. Okay. But I was uh, part of a team that went up to Haida Gwaii to look at um, if there was any impact from the tsunami on the West Coast. Okay. And so we um, checked out all these little inlets along the West Coast. Um, first place that we landed the helicopter, walked into the forest. There was seaweed hanging from the trees. Oh, uh, really? Over two meters above the ground. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and we found that kind of evidence um, in the inlets all along the west coast of Haida Gwaii. So that wave, if you had actually been there, um, the highest it got was 13 meters Ooh. above the tide level. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, yeah, very, very significant. Um, but what we found was mostly things like um, plastic bottles, uh, fishing floats from Japan. Those were the things that were recording how far the wave had got. Um, okay. because, and also a whole bunch of seaweed, um, even a fish, dead fish oh, yeah. <laughs> on the forest floor, um, places where you could see that um, logs that had been sitting on the forest floor had been uh, kind of picked up and floated and moved somewhere else or kind of taken away. You just sort of see the footprint left there. Oh, that's cool. Um, with, with seaweed filling in. It's like ghostly. Kind yeah, of. completely. That's um, cool. Moss that was like peeled back. Um, and it's, you know, there was nobody, yeah. nobody there. Terrifying as it is to imagine, research like this helps us to learn more about the impacts of tectonic activity. But Lucinda reminded us that earthquakes cannot be predicted. Uh, every time a large earthquake happens, we learn something new. And, you know, sometimes scientists try to come up with uh, rules about, you know, okay, there, there have been this many magnitude nine earthquakes in the last century. And based on that, we expect them to happen on this kind of fault. And um, and then the next earthquake kind of proves everybody wrong, and you uh. have to rewrite the rules. Um, so we don't know. And, and sometimes you don't know, okay, that was, um, say it was a magnitude 8 offshore. Well, we know um, that that fault actually has the capacity for a magnitude 9. So the same energy released in a magnitude 9 could be released in a lot of magnitude 8s. Oh. Um, so <laughs> is the magnitude 8 really just a foreshock to magnitude 8.5? Um, so there's, there's that kind of thing that can happen. But the first thing to say is most earthquakes, most large earthquakes don't have foreshocks. So um, foreshocks are something of great interest to seismologists because obviously if we could... Um, if all big earthquakes had foreshocks, it might be a way of actually predicting an earthquake. Currently, we're a long way from predicting earthquakes. In fact, a lot of seismologists believe it's impossible. It's not, it's not really possible to, to predict an earthquake. Um, we'll probably come on to earthquake early warning later, but currently there's no working public earthquake early warning system. And there is a logical reason for that. Because, I mean, the faults that produce earthquakes um, descend down to 10, 20 kilometers depth. Um those are depths that we can't observe. We can't directly observe 
uh, what's going on at those depths. But that's typically where big earthquakes nucleate. But researchers are working on it. What we can do is something different, which is called earthquake early warning. So once the earthquake starts, if we have instruments that can pick up the, detect the seismic waves coming out from the earthquake source close to the source, we can relay information very quickly to Victoria or Vancouver or Seattle, places where people live, uh, ahead of the, the arrival of the seismic waves. So if we could place instrumentation over some of the faults we're concerned about, uh, detect an earthquake within seconds of it starting, uh, we can send a, a warning here and actually give us maybe 30, to 30 seconds to a minute of warning before the shaking, the, the, the damaging surface waves arrive. This is something called earthquake early warning. It's st really state of the art. A lot of people are interested in it. A couple of places already have it. Japan have rolled out a system. Mexico City have a system that works. Um, and California has just brought in one called ShakeAlert that's quite a sophisticated system. Um, it's not the answer to all earthquakes because sometimes the earthquake might be right beneath our feet and it would be impossible to get any warning. But for earthquakes that are offshore Vancouver Island and the big one, I'm very hopeful that within a decade or a couple of decades, we'll have an earthquake early warning system that would actually give us several seconds of warning before the damaging shaking arrives. Mm -hmm. So you'd hear an alarm and you might have an app on your phone that gives you a countdown. This is what the Americans are doing with shake alert. You actually get a countdown to when the shaking arrives and that could actually give you time to get out of a building. Uh, if you had 30 seconds to get out, you could just walk down the corridor, walk down the stairs, you'd be out in 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. So that's something for the future. It's not here yet, but UVIC has actually has invested money in a some of the instrumentation that would underpin the system. With Ocean Networks Canada, there's this offshore cabled observatory off Western Vancouver Island that goes right over the subduction fault. Mm -hmm. And it's got seismometers, it's got pressure gauges, it's got other instruments that could help us detect that big one the big one when it starts we detect it within a few seconds we want to roughly estimate how large it was going to be a few seconds notice is better than none and we are in an extremely privileged position where most people are connected through phones so we have the resources to let people know in many other countries there are a lot more gaps in earthquake preparedness so we have this opportunity where we can be ready so why wouldn't we this is where robert johns comes in so, well, I mean, I can tell you, I live, eat, and breathe emergency planning. It's been my career for a couple of decades now. And I have a regular emergency supply at home of, of food and water and other things that I would need in an earthquake. Robert is the manager of emergency planning here at UVic. And conveniently, we recorded this interview during National Emergency Preparedness Week. Which is always the first full week of May. And it's actually um, observed right across Canada. So provinces and municipalities right across our country are doing things to encourage people to be emergency prepared. Different regions across Canada will obviously have different emergency situations to be prepared for. Ours is, of course, earthquakes and tsunamis, whereas other places have to be prepared for major floods, hurricanes, and tornadoes. But the fact is, most people alive today don't remember the last big quake in 46, so they might not live, eat, and breathe emergency planning. So the problem we have, but it's a good problem, is, is that people haven't experienced these earthquakes. Uh, that's a problem because they don't always take them seriously or know what to do. Uh, it's good because they haven't caused any damage. But we know, as you said earlier, that earthquakes will happen in the future and they will be damaging. So it makes sense for all of us to be prepared for that, uh, that future emergency. 
And Robert says that getting organized for an earthquake is pretty simple. You can, if you're at home uh, and you have a favorite chair that you like to sit in, next time you're sitting there, look around and ask yourself, is there anything near me that could fall on me if it tossles over or topples over in an earthquake? And then maybe move those things or lower them or fasten them to the wall. Same thing with your office or uh, if you've got an office that you're in on campus regularly, you know, you folks at CFUV, can you actually make it safer if there was an earthquake to occur there? Um, so those are the kinds of things you can do to make your home or your workplace safer. Um, when you're actually um, out in the community, you can take note of where you are as you're walking. And I always think of this when I go to thrifties, actually. Um, which aisle do I not want to be in during an earthquake? And it's usually the aisle that has the most glass in it, because those are the things that are going to come off the shelves. Um, but take note of your surroundings. Be aware of that as you're traveling about. And always think about where you can go if there was an earthquake. What's the safe place near you? The most important thing is just thinking about a plan. We do have to have a plan. We need to talk to our family about where are we going to meet if we can't get home. Uh, we need to talk to our relatives about being prepared so we can help one another following an earthquake. Talk to your neighbours, talk to your co-workers, your friends. And that group of people actually can do amazing things together. Um, so treat it like it's something that you have to do in life, uh, much like uh, you know putting on your seatbelt when you get into your car or going grocery shopping. Maybe when you go grocery shopping, next time add a little bit of food for your emergency kit and do that for a couple of months until you've got a supply that you feel comfortable with. Each of us can do small steps over several weeks or months to be emergency prepared and do it in advance. If you're the kind of person who likes to know exactly what you're preparing for, then this next section will be especially helpful. This episode of You in the Ring is brought to you by The Grad House. One of the best kept secrets on campus, the Grad House is for everyone. They offer a range of house-made meals that cater to diverse dietary needs. And with weekly specials, you are sure to find something new every time you visit. Located right off the bus loop, the Grad House is a great place for lunch, dinner, or just hanging out with friends. The Grad House. You don't have to be a grad student to eat here. But generally speaking, earthquakes can, um, sometimes they're preceded by a sound, sort of like a rumbling truck sound. Sometimes there's a rumble in the building where you're not really sure if it's an earthquake, and then the strong ground motion occurs soon after that. And other times it's just straight into the strong ground motion. We would feel the P wave. Okay. <laughs> it would probably feel like a very large uh, bang. So the first you'll know about it is you'll feel the shaking. Um, if there was a crustal earthquake magnitude 6 or 7, we're talking about probably 10 to 30 seconds of heavy shaking. And the shaking could be violent enough that you can't stand up. Hopefully by this point I've secured all my porcelain dolls around my favourite chair. Hopefully uh, we all know what to do, and that, that is uh, drop cover and hold on. So as soon as you realize that an earthquake is, is occurring, the best thing you can do is to take shelter from the things that can fall on you. And we're not as worried about buildings falling on us as we are about the things in the buildings. So the big teaching that we use in North America is something called drop, cover, and hold on. And drop, cover, hold on basically means get under something that will protect you from the things above you that can land on you. Stay there until the end of the ground motion. You can't run. So the best thing to do in that scenario, if you feel shaking, is to duck, cover, and hold on. So duck under some furniture. If there's a sturdy table nearby, duck under it. Um, a lot of casualties in earthquakes are from things falling off, you know, fittings falling off walls and ceilings. 
And equally, a very unsafe place to be in an earthquake is immediately outside a building because things will fall off buildings. So I would have my students, um, hopefully we we would have practiced this. Um, It's always an opportunity to practice with ShakeOut BC every year in October. And getting under a sturdy piece of furniture is what you want to do. Um, Tuck your head and protect the back of your neck. And basically, uh, hold on for that ride. Um, For the big one, the magnitude 9, we can expect strong, strong shaking to go on for possibly more than three minutes, three to four minutes, which will feel like an absolute eternity. The reality is, is most of us will probably be inside when uh, an earthquake happens. Most of us work or or go to school inside of buildings. And so the best thing you can do really is to find that object to get underneath. So a table, a chair. If you don't have that object, go to the ground. That's the drop part of drop cover. Hold on. And uh, make like a turtle. Cover your head and your neck with your hands and your arms and protect yourself from things that can land on you, like ceiling tiles or light fixtures and that kind of thing. Uh, make yourself a smaller target and uh, and stay where you are. It's strong enough that um, you might try to stand up and move somewhere, but you'll be knocked off your feet. So um, kind of ride that out <laughs> uh, in place. Um, you are best off, even if you are um, thinking, I, I should get outside, wait until that shaking stops. You're much more likely to be injured as you try to move out of a building. So actually the, uh, your urge may be to run outside, but the best thing to do is not to run outside, it's to duck cover and hold on. If you're already outside, that's probably a safe place to be, but certainly get away from a building or the edge of a building. Most people that run from buildings don't do very well when they do that. They trip and fall or they get hit with things as they leave the building as the facades fall off the buildings. Often it's, you know, it's not the building itself, if it's uh, relatively new, our building codes are, are, are good enough that this building is not going to collapse on you. But there's a lot of um, non-structural elements, so, um, ceiling tiles, bookcases, mm-hmm. um, window panes, things that can break. And then that's what's going to uh, damage, what's going to injure the most people. Um, so you're better, best off, stay in place, write it out. Um, so that's the the immediate thing w- w- which will happen will be that. Then there'll be, um, I mean, there are evacuation pr- procedures. There are safe places to go and congregate on campus uh, and t- until sort of um, instructions come from the um, emergency management um, as to what people should do. Uh, if you're by the coast, certainly get to higher ground because earthquakes in this region, the, the submarine earthquakes are capable of generating tsunamis. The tsunami waves travel much slower than the earthquake waves. Um, Then consider, okay, that was a very, very large earthquake. Am I anywhere close to the water here? And lucky for us at UVic, um, we are high enough that we do not have to worry uh, about the tsunami. Okay. So then I think then that's when you you get outside once you you feel that that strong earthquake is is over. And... uh, Make your way to open space, um, various muster stations around campus, and uh, yeah, as, sort of yeah, assess. Okay. If a, yeah. Do you think what like do you think like the after the time after the earthquake happens? Do you think that's also kind of will that be a dangerous time? Like, will people still be able to like contact each other? I I mean, I imagine unless like a cell phone tower falls or something, but like. The uh, the emergency services generally want you to 
not use your cell phone at that time. Right. Um, even if, yeah, the cell towers, everything is, is working um, because, you know, they should have priority for for emergencies. Mm-hmm. Um, what is recommended, though, is that people have an emergency plan. And, you know, once, um, you know, you realize, okay, I'm, I survived. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. I want to make sure that my family knows I'm okay. Um, that, you know, you, you may have family around town. You might be scattered in different places. Um, often it's a good idea to have a contact person who is outside of this area that you all kind of check in with in whatever way you can over that sort of next day or so. So the tsunami waves might take minutes or even hours to arrive here at Victoria. Um, So get away from the coast and stay away from the coast until you get the all clear that there was no tsunami um, generated in the earthquake. Um, So that's the immediate um, activities that you should take. Um, Hopefully you'll have uh, prepared an earthquake emergency kit. Hopefully. If you haven't prepared yours yet, here's what it should include. One gallon of water per person per day for at least three days. Household chlorine bleach and medicine dropper to disinfect water. At least a three-day supply of non-perishable food. Battery-powered or hand-crank radio, where you can tune in to CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Sorry. Flashlight, first aid kit, extra batteries, a whistle, a dust mask to help you filter contaminated air, plastic sheeting and duct tape to create a shelter in place, a wrench or pliers to turn off utilities, a manual can opener for food, local maps, cell phone with chargers and a backup battery, prescription and non-prescription medications, glasses and contact lens solution, blankets, extra clothes, fire extinguisher, matches in a waterproof container, pads and tampons. Ed feels that as far as the university goes, we are fairly well prepared. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. I mean, there's a lot of um, publicity surrounding earthquake hazards on campus. There are the frequent um, sort of earthquake uh, drills uh, and a lot of literature on corridors, on posters and things about what to do in an earthquake. But how far does preparation go in a huge disaster like this? The recovery from a a big earthquake will take a long time and it could take months or even years. Um, There'll be massive economic costs to a big earthquake here in Victoria. Um, So the economy uh, will will see some um, turbulence, I suppose. Um, So, yeah, a really big earthquake could have lasting impact here in Victoria. And specifically at UVic, different buildings have been updated while others have not. Yeah, so Clearyhoo is an interesting example um, of... Actually, it's a nice example of a, a retrofitted building. So if you look at the lower floor, the ground floor of Clarihue, you will actually see these diagonal braces, these sort of poles sticking at, at um, like the Scottish flag, a kind of diagonal pattern. Um, and that's a way of bracing that lower story from collapse. And actually, a lot of um, damage in earthquakes is, is the collapse of the first story. There's an effect called the soft first story effect. It's been seen in many, many earthquakes where the lowest floor collapses. Um, so you'll see the diagonal bracing on the Clarihue building that specifically targets that. Other older buildings have also been retrofit. One is Elliot, just out of the window here in my office in Bob Wright Center. The Elliot building, you'll see these um, square bracing on the side. Um, 
So that's also been retrofit. Retrofitting buildings is is very, very expensive. So those retrofits, I think, both cost in the millions of dollars. So it's not a cheap thing to do. But um, I think UVic has targeted some of the most vulnerable buildings already. And obviously, newer buildings are safer than the older ones, because all this information about the big one is relatively recent. It was only fully understood that we live on a uh, plate boundary capable of really big earthquakes in the late 1980s. That's the first time there was any published literature on this. Um, this Now it's an accepted fact. Um, and then it takes time for the science to get into the building codes. So actually buildings built in the 1990s were still using codes that um, uh, that were written before knowledge of these big earthquakes um, was available. So um, I would say, you know, buildings built in the 2000s and, and even the 2010s are in general safer than buildings built in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. So when we look at our buildings around us... Um, Meet Dr. Tuna Onur. The ones that are designed to the seismic provisions of the building code and that were designed recently because we only recently started really including this type of earthquake in our building codes. Um, the, then maybe these buildings might fare okay. Um, but our older buildings that have either not have seen any seismic provisions or design or uh, any any kind of uh, resistance to seismic loads, but also uh, buildings that were in the early stages, early ages, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, where we had codes, but we have not known the risk that this kind of earthquake poses to us here, um, will fare worse, obviously. I'm a structural engineer. Um, I teach here at the University of Victoria in the civil engineering program a course on earthquake engineering. It sounds like a given that our buildings should be mandated to protect us, but there is a catch. Contemporary building codes currently aim for life safety. What that means is if your building is designed to the code, all you can expect in terms of performance of that building is that it's not going to collapse on, on top of you and kill you. You need to evaluate your existing structure for 60% of the load of the current code. If you pass, if, you're, if your capacity is 61% of the current code, then you're okay. You don't need to retrofit. This was true for all buildings until the 2015 National Building Code got introduced. But that was only four years ago, and most of the apartments UVic students live in are older than that. And I always ask the question, what is 60% of life safety? Because <laughs> all we are aiming for in our building codes is life safety. What does it mean to have 60% of the load? That, what is it going to give you if it's not giving you life safety? Even under the new National Building Code, retrofitting buildings to be ready for an earthquake isn't mandatory. After all, it's really only coastal areas affected by this, not the rest of the country. That's why a lot of places take their building code to a municipal level. So, for example, California, uh, not as a state, not as a United States as a country, but California has some jurisdictions, such as City of LA, City of San Francisco, City of Oakland, have themselves at the city level decided we're going to mandate, we're going to identify the most vulnerable buildings in our uh, community, and we're going to mandate retrofit of those for will give the owners 10 years, 20 years, 30 years 
sometimes quite long periods of time uh, just to make the financial burden a little bit more manageable. But we're going to make it mandatory. But California is different than Vic. We don't have the same types of vulnerable buildings, right? We absolutely, we have a lot of them. Uh, so, for example, the, the first one is unreinforced masonry. These, If you walk downtown Victoria, it's almost 95% unreinforced masonry, uh, the core downtown. So if you've seen pictures of Christchurch, for example, after the New Zealand earthquake uh, in Christchurch, Christchurch had a lot of non-reinforced masonry damage in downtown core. In fact, I remember looking at a picture and thinking, this looks just like Victoria. So it's if something similar happened in Victoria, this is what we're facing. And that downtown core was still partially cordoned off four years after the earthquake in New Zealand. So unreinforced masonry is, one, they're old. They're prior to any kind of building code. They're built before any seismic uh, considerations were included in engineering thinking. Um, th they're, so they're pre-code, but they're also, the, the, the age also means that the mortar that holds that brick together is crumbling, it's dry, it's no longer has the same bearing capacity as it did 100 years ago. Um, and also it's a heavy material. <laughs> and uh, brick was a very favored uh, material in England because of uh, great protection from windstorms. So a heavy material is great uh, for that purpose, but it's not great for earthquakes because it's uh, what we call a brittle failure. So brick and stone masonry is the same thing. They're fairly strong materials until they fail. But once they fail, there's no room. They, they have no flexibility whatsoever. When the structure fails, it fails spectacularly. And unfortunately, because of the heavy materials, life loss is a, um, a big risk in these buildings. One of the ways we retrofit buildings is through the use of shear walls. Shear walls are like columns except longer and more slender, like, believe it or not, a wall. While columns transfer force from top to bottom, the length of the shear wall allows them to distribute that force horizontally as well, letting a building shake side to side in an earthquake without immediately becoming brittle and breaking. Concrete shear walls since about 1990s, we've uh, the code is advanced such that you can design them in a what we call ductile manner. So def deformations, uh, they, they can deform flexibly without failing suddenly. Um, but prior to that, so in, again, 1970s, 80s, concrete structures uh, are another target for California uh, communities' uh, mandatory retrofit schemes, what we call non-ductile concrete buildings. Because again, just like the unreinforced masonry, when they fail, it's a heavy material, and usually these concrete buildings are tall, so more people are, many people are impacted, and uh, chance of them having injuries and life loss is higher. I don't know about you, but that describes basically every apartment me and my friends have ever lived in. And the third type of building that's targeted is um, these uh, walk-up apartments where you have tuck-under parking, and we have a lot of them in. Victoria. Um, when I talk about this, usually people, most people uh, can picture them. In fact, a lot of them, a lot of people have lived in them. <laughs> so it's the ones that are, for example, there, we have quite a few of them in Cook Street Village. If you walk around uh, up and down the streets, uh, you're going to see in the parts of Cook Street Village where there's apartment buildings, uh, uh, below a certain size, uh, wood apartment buildings, 
are if you walk up in, in the backside, you're going to see the Takander parking with uh, what I call matchstick columns in between the parking lots or parking spots so that the cars can park easily. So these buildings have spectacularly failed in uh, both uh, 1989 uh, Loma Prieta earthquake in California, in Northern California, and also in 1994 Northridge earthquake in Southern California. So they're a big target for mandatory retrofits. Uh, so both these cities have mandated um, retrofit of all what we call oh, that weak floor that has the columns where you're parking your cars is called a soft story. So all soft story wood apartment buildings are mandated to be retrofitted. They're also a target for mandatory retrofits. So these three very vulnerable buildings have been targeted in California, and they all exist in our communities here also. Um, I feel that in Canada we have the opportunity to, before anybody's hurt, we could do something about it. Uh, earthquakes are uh, lucky for us and unlucky for us. They're rare occurrences, even even the frequently happening ones, a couple of hundred years in between. So we we need to start now, uh, because the every day that we don't start is is postponing the risk and the, all the consequences to the future, and we're still going to deal with it. And if we start today, on the other hand, we'll deal with less of a disaster, perhaps, and I think that's well worth it. But how do we start? Is there some kind of hashtag I can use? Is there some kind of slacktivism I can engage in to soothe my conscience without actually enacting any real change? Unfortunately, haters, enacting change in the building codes is hella grassroots, and it requires direct support for more seismic proofing in our building codes. But us engineers need that support. <laughs> One from perhaps an economic uh, basis, why this is actually cheaper in the long term, but also from the public. Uh, I don't know... Um, if, we do, if we're doing a good job of um, reaching out to the public and telling them what their building code is, what does it mean when a building is designed to the code? Um, I suspect a lot of people have the idea that when a building, when their building is designed to the recent code, so they're buying a, a building that was recently built, their expectation is that when the earthquake happens, they're going to be able to keep living in their house. But that's really, really far from the truth. The truth is your building may be a, uh, quite significantly damaged as long as you walk out of it alive. We consider that a success currently in our building codes. And I think perhaps that, needs, that message needs to get out to tell. And if, if public starts requiring more from our building codes, then we could fight this fight together and us engineers can say okay yes we we're willing to do this so the building code uh has uh, various ways of public participation it's a public process in fact uh, i don't think very many people are aware of this even engineers <laughs> um, but uh, every five years national building code of canada gets updated and in that process in that five-year development process for the update there's at least two public review time windows. It seems that the public reviews are scheduled every fall, usually ending in like January. So check out nrc.canada.ca for more info. So the code 
gets drafted, so the new update gets drafted, it goes to public review. It got, gets put on the web. Anybody can look at it and anybody can comment on it. And we have to address every single comment. It doesn't have to come from a qualified professional or engineer or uh, it could be coming from insurance industry. It could be coming from homeowners. It could be coming from anybody. Uh, the other one is um, any time in the code process, you don't have to wait for these open periods of time. You could submit a code change request to the code and say, I'm a concerned citizen um, and um, I believe for better, more resilient communities, we need to think beyond preventing collapse to our buildings. Simple as that. Uh, and I'd like our code to change to reflect this. So any code change request that comes from outside, again, we have to carefully uh, address. We have to uh, definitely respond to. So same thing with the public review comments. We have to respond to every review comment that comes into the code process. You can submit a code change request at the link in the episode notes. So perhaps one comment like this won't change anything, but if we keep seeing this, these comments coming more and more from the public, from a more informed, from a more informed public, eventually we're going to have to put this table, this in our code. The BC Schools Retrofit Program is not, wasn't initially initiated by the BC government. It wasn't uh, immediately embraced by the BC government as a program. It was the initiative of, of one medical doctor who was concerned about her child in one of these unreinforced masonry schools, spending all day at, at these very vulnerable buildings. Uh, she started that movement and she took it as far as uh, being heard by the BC government. So every individual counts, every, every little bit that you think is important. Um, you, you can find ways to try and, uh, I know it feels daunting, but uh, I think if we take it in little bits and pieces, because if we don't do anything, if we're paralyzed and we're not doing anything, we're not changing the status quo and we're just taking all that risk and carrying it into the future. Whereas we have an opportunity now, today, to make that a bit each day a bit less risk. Earthquakes are coming, and they're inevitable, and... Ah! But there's plenty you can do to be prepared. Have an earthquake preparedness kit. When there's an earthquake, remember, don't run out of the building. Send in a code change request to make more vulnerable structures in our community stronger against earthquakes so that we can maintain our most important facilities when a quake strikes. And don't forget, stop, drop, and cover. This episode of You in the Ring was produced by Mary Decker, with help from Amanda Watland, Andrew Hines, Brendan McGee, and me, Silas Cerne. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. Thank you to all of our guests, Lucinda Leonard, Ed Neeson, Robert Johns, and Dr. Tuna Onur. This program would not be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the UVic Student Award and Financial Aid Work Study Program. If you like what you heard, tune in to You in the Ring next week and subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts.
This episode of You in the Ring is brought to you by Grad House. One of the best kept secrets on campus, the Grad House is for everyone. They offer a range of house-made meals that cater to diverse dietary needs. And with weekly specials, you're sure to find something new every time you visit. Located right off the bus loop of UVic, the Grad House is a great place for lunch, dinner, or just hanging out with your friends. The Grad House. You don't have to be a grad student to eat here. Hey, give me your ear. Let's, uh, let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. At first, I was just working on stuff with um, Nicola about All Access, and then I was working on stuff with You in the Ring, and then I started working on stuff for, for uh, Full Circle, and it was just episode after episode, and I got so into it. And then I just got thrown into this beautiful world, beautiful chaotic world of CFUV podcast. And I just became in love with the process. And I don't know, just being able to create a story from scratch, taking all these random parts that seemingly don't go together and then cutting them into this this story that's can be so captivating and just so layered and really became addicting. And I'm still addicted. And now it's kind of all I want to do. Now, when I listen to a podcast, I don't listen. I I hear the story, but the hearing goes so much deeper than that. This is starting to sound pretentious, but like, I'll hear a transition or a fade out. And I'll be like, oh, that's so interesting how they did that. Or how they bring in a music for a second. Or how it's all chopped up. I'll just pause and rewind it just to hear how that happened and be like, wow, could I do that for this episode? I should have done that for that episode. This is so interesting. How did they do that? How did they do that? And I just, yeah, it's become a bit of an obsession. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at right now. Even just confidence. The people here, I walked in never making a podcast before and these beautiful people just uplifted me so much they made me feel like a rock star they called me rock star to my face many times it made me really uncomfortable and I probably left five minutes later but it's nice to be called a rock star and it's nice to feel like a superstar or a rock star or whatever kind of star you are you can be a shooting star I guess yeah it's really good it was what I would call a game changer and I think everyone should do it even just for an episode even just pitch an episode if you have a crazy idea like, see what happens. Go schedule some weird interviews with people. It's all been so special. I'd do it again, 100%. I still want to keep doing it. I will keep doing it. I will do it again. <laughs> um, yeah. If you like this episode about our impending future, you might also like the full circle episode about futurisms called Currently Speaking, A Look at Victoria's Futures.